According to the calendar for the uh, Southeast Asian Buddhist countries, Sri Lanka, Burma, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, and possibly more, I'm not sure, but today is New Year's Day, or the beginning of the celebration of New Year. And uh, yesterday we had a large crowd of Sri Lankan folk come and spend the day here. Um, And today uh, we had a very large crowd of of Thai folk here to mark what they call Songkran. And very friendly, jolly gathering and and also as uh, is the uh, I think rather skillful custom in Thai society they they use the opportunity to uh, begin the new year with asking for forgiveness uh, from the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. They, they, uh, those of you that were here saw people going through the, the ritual of bathing the Buddha image and then also uh, pouring favorite, fragrant water over the hands of the Sangha. And if, uh, if you're in Thailand, actually they they have us sitting on a bamboo bench pouring buckets of water over us. So this was a lot more elegant and and um, I'm thankful that they don't pour buckets of water over us here. Um, and um, so as the beginning of the new year, it was an opportunity. Uh, those of you that are here will have heard the, the short talk I gave on pointing out how we can use this convention, this tradition, to begin again, to start anew. And, and it highlights and reminds us of a profoundly important aspect of the Buddha's teachings that, that every moment is new, that every moment is an opportunity to begin again. We can fall into the presumption that, oh, we've been here before, here we go again, oh, yeah, this old habit of mine raising its ugly head or there I go again doing that thing again and, and we presume that we've been here before when in fact we haven't. The situation is moment by moment always actually, actually new. All conditioned phenomena are impermanent and never before have they conspired to configure themselves like this in this moment, in this moment, in this moment. It's always new. And if we reflect on that, we have an opportunity to let go of these presumptions that we can heedlessly pick up about a fixed reality. That I'm a fixed thing, that life is fixed. And deny ourselves of the, uh, the benefit, the good fortune, the opportunity to let go and begin again, to see things anew to grow, 
to develop, to change. So when we lose mindfulness, we tend to lose the edge of our practice. Riding the edge is good practice. You want to contemplate what is good practice. Good practice is riding the edge, is being on the edge, where we're feeling the uncertainty that we live with. This is why the Buddha encourages us to pay attention to death, because it cuts through the presumption of certitude. And so the encouragement to cultivate mindfulness here and now and to keep coming back, keep coming back, however many times we forget, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter how many times we forget, so long as we remember. If we forget and we never remember again, well, that's a pity. But hopefully that's not going to happen. We forget and then sooner or later we remember. And hopefully, with effort, we remember sooner. And every time we remember, that's it. Now, if we forget again and then we fall into complaining and criticizing, oh, I shouldn't have forgotten. Well, of course, we've already forgotten again. But if we can cut through that and say, oh, thank goodness, I remembered. Marvelous, wonderful, incredible, fantastic. I remembered again. That's it. And nothing extra. We don't add any, anything extra to it. So if we want to know what, uh, yeah, as I was saying, what a, a, a definition of good practice is, it's riding the edge. But it takes cultivation, it takes effort to, to ride the edge. The tendency, the habits we have, is very much towards losing mindfulness, and forgetting ourselves, and defaulting to habits of clinging. And when we cling... What happens? Well, we're, I'm sure we're all familiar with this. We get dull. We lose the edge. And like those who, those of you who've been on retreats, and you endure the first three days, the kind of the tedium of the winding down of the old momentum of habits, and until by about the fourth day, you suddenly find yourself here. All right, here I am again. I'll, Thank goodness I came on retreat and pulled out of that momentum. And, and we feel refreshed, we feel renewed, moment by moment, breath by breath, step by step. And our meditation helps us come back to this moment, beginning again, beginning again. And there's an aliveness, there's a vitality, there's, there's a relevance to our life when we're living with that kind of awareness. But then what happens when we come off retreat and we're no longer surrounded by people and circumstances that encourage us, it's very easy to fall back into the old habits of clinging again. Then what happens is little by little the lights go out. They start to collapse and become more dull again. And So that's not an opportunity to then get all critical and feel sorry for ourselves. As again, it's an opportunity to remember. Say, oh, like, this is what happens when I lose the edge. When I'm no longer riding the edge. This is what happens when I fall into presuming solidity, certitude. We're not mindful. We're not remembering this moment, this moment, this moment. We're not re- recollecting on the memories that we have are memories the memories that we have, the memory that I have of such and such an incident 
is not the same as the incident. The incident is dead and gone. It's like a leaf on a tree that's fallen off. That's it. It'll never go back up again, at least not in that form. It's fallen off. That's what memories are. They're like dead leaves. They turn into compost and transformed into the elements. And and the memories, when we're mindful, remember, memories are memories. And we don't get lost in them. When we're mindful, remember, we recollect fantasies about the future. That's going to happen. That could happen. This could happen. When we're mindful, we say, oh, right, that's it. That's just like, it's just like a photograph. It's like a movie. You know, there's nothing really there. We get all excited and all hot under the collar and all head up and excited about it. But in reality, it's just a fantasy. When we remember, when we're mindful... It's not a problem. We can speculate and extrapolate about the future without getting lost. So we take note of that. All right, this is what happens to get lost, get dull, lose the edge, start presuming solidity and certainty. And we start mistaking forms for that which really matters. What really matters in life is the heart, the spirit. That's what really matters. The forms are one thing. We have forms, and forms definitely have their place, like the form we have of of puja here. We come into this building, a bunch of stone and wood and glass and, and nice oak flooring and pure wool carpet and cotton sitting mass and buckwheat-filled zafus, all very groovy and lovely. That's the form. Now, we could, we could get mistaken into thinking that that's what matters and be looking around and say, oh, wow, what a gorgeous Dhamma Hall. This is a, a really cool place and start taking photos from particular angles and, and then maybe thinking how we could improve it. We could change this, we could change that. And you know, worrying about the form or, or the... Uh, there's no flowers on the shrine. What's happened to the flowers on the shrine? We could get upset because there's no flowers. Well, there are some, but they're plastic. I, mean, I don't like plastic flowers. Well, actually, they're silk. No. I don't like silk flowers either. We could spend all our time fussing over the form. But what's the spirit? What's the point? What's the point of the Dhamma Hall? The point of the Dhamma Hall is to have a a warm, clean, dry sanctuary that we can come into and be still and be reminded, be inducted into the inner templum, the inner temple, the inner sanctuary, the heart sanctuary. That's the point. But when we lose mindfulness, when we forget ourselves, then we give too much emphasis to form and we forget the spirit. And this is something worth contemplating. And again, not once we, if we do it to then get all overly critical and upset about it, you say, all oh, right, that, well, that was a mistake. I mean, you know, you, know, you go into a Dhamma hall and you don't like, you don't like the Buddha's face. I mean, <laughs> it's quite possible, you know. It's flashing lights and goodness knows what you see in some temples and the incense is pretty pongy as well sometimes and, and you can get all upset about the Buddha image and the incense and the whatever, but that's not the point of the temple. And so if we catch ourselves doing it, say, all right, okay, I'm lost there. That's lost. Or like today, the uh, the ritual of you know bathing the Buddha image and pouring fragrant 
water over the hands of the monks and and asking for forgiveness and if you don't understand what's going on you can look at that and say well that's a bit kind of primitive behavior isn't it well, you know, pouring this fragrant water over the fingers of those monks and they're not that great anyway and you could be falling into all sorts of habits of criticism and but you don't realize the point of the ritual is not the monks don't need their hands washed I can tell you we know how to wash our own hands but the point is what it symbolizes for the people that are doing it, this beginning again, this cleansing the heart of whatever's gone before. We all make mistakes, we acknowledge our mistakes, and this bathing the Buddha and asking for forgiveness from the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, is a ritual way of engaging with the spirit of letting go and beginning again. Hmm. So we, uh, we have these habits of, of forgetting ourselves and then mistaking the form of forgetting the spirit. But if there's mindfulness, we come back and we begin again. And we see, all right, this is the form and this is the spirit. And, and when we catch ourselves, well, then we do experience all the beginning again. And till it happens next time. Yeah. And it happens all the time and. In formal meditation, we get overly hung up on our meditation techniques and try to become perfectionists. Our control freakery creeps into our meditation and instead of our meditation serving the spirit of letting go, it just becomes another exercise in becoming a control freak. You know, how good can I meditate? You know, start telling people about our meditation experiences listening to people talk about their meditation experiences and how wonderful they are. That's not the point. It's not the point to become wonderful and pleased with yourself. The point of meditation is to see the consequence of our habits of clinging and be inspired to let go. That's the spirit. That's the point. So whether it's in formal meditation or in daily life, wherever we mistake the form for the spirit to remember, it's all right, that's... That's not seeing clearly. That's not being mindful. Some years ago, I was, when I was traveling, I was, it was in Australia, actually. I, I had uh, given a talk at a local Buddhist society, and, and a large crowd of people had turned up, and it was a very nice evening. I enjoyed it very much. And the next day, I was leaving the country. And I don't know where I was flying to, but I was leaving Australia. And so here I am at the customs desk in the airport, and... And, and I always, after all these years, I still get intimidated by customs officers. I always feel like they're about to, I don't know, catch me for whatever's my ill-spent youth or whatever reasons are, but I get intimidated by these burly-looking characters in their uniforms. And, and Well, it might also be that for some reason in Australia, nowhere else but in Australia for years, whenever I went in or left, they would call me up and take me aside and say your passport's been stolen, sir, and want to question me and, you know, find out who I was. And, and I've never found out why, but every time my passport came up on their computer is stolen. And it wasn't, I tell you, it wasn't stolen. It was really mine. But for whatever reason, I, I, I continue to be intimidated by customs officers. And so here I am at the customs desk leaving Australia and and the night before, having, of course, expounded these Dhamma teachings on letting go and <laughs> all the rest of it, 
And uh, so here I am making a problem out of these customs officers and probably a bit stressed. And as I go through, the customs officer in the next booth here, he yells over and says, oh, great Dhamma talk last night, Ajahn, when are you coming back again? And I looked over and just kind of, I expect he was a Malaysian fellow. And, um, and he said, oh, right, actually, yeah, these are human beings, these burly-looking blokes with uniforms. They're just suffering people just like me, like everybody else. And, and we so easily get fooled by the form. Now, of course, you know, policemen and customs officers wear these uniforms intending to intimidate. But we don't have to buy into that. You don't have to buy into these structures for intimidation or like the advertising agency. You know, they, they coat everything with a, a kind of a slime that attracts you to buying their products. We get fooled by the form and get pulled into something that we wish we hadn't. And this happens over and over again in, in daily life, whether it's projecting onto people, solidifying them, forgetting that actually they're changing processes. They don't want to be solidified. Yeah, they're like me. They don't want to be fixed with somebody else's view or opinion. What really works, when we let go, when we let go of clinging to the form, then there's a chance the spirit of compassion can manifest. But the spirit of compassion, the heart level, is obstructed by our clinging to the forms. Now again, this is not taking possession against the forms. We use the forms. We have conventions. You, you don't go through customs and go up and slap the guy on the back and say, hey, you, you like my Dhamma talk last night? <laughs> You don't do that, that's not the proper... You, know, you show due respect to the customs officer, but you don't believe in it too much. And similarly, as I was saying, with our meditation techniques, we use our meditation techniques, we read the teachings, we listen to the tradition, we show due respect for the conventions, for the forms, but we hopefully don't lose sight of the spirit that it's all about becoming acutely aware of our habit of clinging and letting go. Now, if we're doing this, then what we start to see is that we can use these forms in a graceful way. You know, bowing is not a problem. You know, for a lot of us, myself included, we first came across Buddhism, we had a problem with bowing and didn't like it, you know, bowing down to graven images. We projected too much authority out onto the form of the bodhram. We forgot that it's something that symbolizes wisdom and compassion. And, and by lowering ourselves in front of it, we come into a relationship with that potential within ourselves. And it can become a very, very pleasant, a very agreeable, very beautiful thing to learn how to bow. Some of you... Uh, been here staying, would have met our friend from London who was saying George Sharp. He, he was here for a few days and he was telling me how when he went to visit Ajahn Chah in Thailand many years ago, he wasn't very keen on all this bowing and scraping business and he, he challenged Ajahn Chah and he, he said, you know, why, why do you go along with people you know, bowing at you all day long? And, and Ajahn Chah says, well, if the body can't bend, the heart can't bend. If the body is too rigid, it helps keep the heart in a rigid mode. And 
We don't want the heart in a rigid mode. We want the heart in a flexible mode so we can let go of this burden that we carry around, this presumption of that we, we know who we are, we're a fixed, solid thing, and we've got this terrible history and we've got all these problems and all these obstructions, and it's such a burden. Well, actually, the form of bowing helps. If we're mindful, then we can give ourselves in. We can enjoy it. There's a, uh, a friend of mine who lives in, in Hungary was telling me how, when this is quite some years ago now, where he, um, he started coming. He'd had very little ex- exposure to Buddhism, He's uh, stuck out there. This is this is quite some years ago now, when Hungary was still a communist country, and uh, and he, he had faith in Buddhist teachings, but he had very little exposure to actual Buddhist and Buddhist practice. And when he first came over to this country and started doing meditation retreats, uh, he was very very happy the opportunity. But when he saw this bowing going on, he absolutely hated it. You know, can't you grow out of it? I mean, it's, who needs such a thing? Well, then he said, well, at the end of the retreat, he had come to see this resistance, this view that he was clinging to, and let himself experiment with it, and discovered that he loved it. There was something within him that wasn't nourished by his thinking about the Buddha. You know, of course, that piece of bronze up there is not the Buddha, but it symbolizes. You know, just like when you shake somebody's hand, and not because you want to hold their hand, you know, it's... It's initiating the possibility of a communication. It symbolizes something. When we bow down to the Buddha, it symbolizes the willingness, my willingness to let go of my way and honor the way, the way things are, the Dhamma. And in fact, he told me that when he went back to to Hungary, he had a very small apartment and he didn't have a, a Buddha image and he used to sit meditation in the kitchen. He'd stay up late at night when the family had gone to bed and he'd sit meditation in the kitchen and because he didn't have a Buddha image, he used to bow to the refrigerator. And it was a <laughs> He wasn't stuck on the form. He used the form uh, to help the heart let go. You know? So this is not just something that uh, those of us who feel inspired and moved to engage in Spiritual practices need to be careful about, but everybody. These days you'll find, you listen to the news, and everybody's going on about scientific proof. Politicians always quoting scientific proof. The scientific evidence is such and such. Well, there's no scientific evidence. But when was scientific evidence ever permanent? I mean, they're always changing the scientific evidence. If you listen, you listen to what's behind their claims, what it really is a lot of the time is just another excuse to cling to something to make themselves feel safe. That's what we do. That's why we cling. We cling to compensate for our fear of uncertainty. As children, of course, mommy and daddy tell us all sorts of stories about reality and we develop all these clinging habits and that becomes our disposition, our relationship to life is one of clinging. Not just clinging to our things, but also clinging to views and opinions. And if we don't come across good spiritual teachings, then we never grow out of that. And we end up fighting over our views and opinions. And it becomes a massive compensation for our fear 
of uncertainty. And then when the threat of death comes to us or the actuality of the death of somebody else comes to us, we go into shock. Why? Why would we be shocked by death when there is nothing more guaranteed than death? Nothing. Of all the realities that we're exposed to, once you're born, there's one that's absolutely guaranteed is you're going to die. And yet, we're going to shock. Why? Because we cling to presumptions that don't accord with reality. So these need to, of course, be undone, and this is what our commitment and our encouragement to cultivate mindfulness in daily life and a form of practice is all about, to come across these, these assumptions of certainty and solidity that obstruct our seeing reality. Yeah? And every time we see where we've been caught up in, in one of these ways of wrong thinking, of clinging, say, oh, that's good, that's good, and you don't get all critical. It's like, again, with our meditation, when the mind wanders and it comes back, say, oh, that's great, thank goodness I remembered. We don't get all critical about, I should never have forgotten. We begin again, we begin again, over and over again. But it does take faith to let go because uncertainty is scary change is scary the personality belief that we've been identified with for a very long time has protected us from the actuality of uncertainty that's a fact and we feel safe by clinging to our memories even if it's the memory of our suffering we prefer that sometimes over letting go and being faced with uncertainty. But you know, all of us are Buddhists because the, the stale state of clinging to false certainty doesn't make us feel good. Yeah. We've seen through it to some degree. And so we're interested in letting go. We're interested in, in liberating that energy that it takes to cling. It takes so much energy to be clinging. I can remember when I was about, I think, 36 years old, and for the first time in my life, it suddenly occurred to me that I wasn't immortal. <laughs> now, of course, that sounds a little bit stupid, doesn't it? But I think the fact is most people think they're immortal. We get around you know, holding to these ideas that don't accord with reality. But on that occasion, where I don't know what shifted or what happened, maybe it's a stage of life thing, but at 36, I remember standing by a window, I was in the Devon Vihara, and this thought occurred to me, you know, in so many years' time, I won't be here. I'll be gone. I'll be history. And you know what? It was a wonderful feeling. It was a great feeling to realize I'll be dead one day. And I thought, well, that's a bit sick, isn't it? You know, to be kind of getting off on the thought you're going to be dead. And contemplating it further, what occurred to me was that it takes a lot of energy to lie to ourselves. It's a lie to say that we're going to live forever. All of our clinging is a lie. And that's a huge waste of energy. No wonder we get around exhausted, losing the edge, losing vitality. Because we're busy investing all our energy in this, these lies about reality. So waking up to reality, seeing the actual impermanence of all conditions, the actuality, the uncertainty 
that we live with doesn't have to be as daunting as it appears. But it doesn't have to be, but it is. You know, on a certain level, it does appear threatening. So how do we, how do we go through it? Well, faith, that's, that's what it takes. That's why faith is a spiritual faculty. You know, the five spiritual faculties, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, discernment. Sattavirya, Sati, Samadhi, Panya, the Buddha identified these as these five spiritual faculties that we're cultivating when we're sitting meditation. The first one is faith, sadha. Now, for good reasons, a lot of us who are you know, not very comfortable with the word faith because we were very early on in life conditioned that it's a kind of a blind belief that you've got to grasp, otherwise you're going down forever, which is not a very helpful thing to tell little human beings. In fact, it's a very unhelpful thing to tell anybody at any stage of your life. But some of us got told that myth. We got infected with that myth when we were very early on in life, so we're not very keen on this word faith. But if we can look a little deeper, a little bit more, a little bit more subtle, see what's really being pointed to, what is the dynamic, what is being referred to with this word sadha, faith, trust, confidence. We trust that there is order within this chaos. Within the conditioned realm, which is all uncertain, unpredictable, impermanent, there is the unconditioned, which is certain, which is predictable, which is dependable, which from the Buddhist perspective can be realized. And so we choose, or we can if we want to, if we're mindful, we investigate the consequence of clinging to our false views leads to this losing the edge, losing vitality, dullness, boring existence, had enough of that. The alternative is trusting and letting go of these false assumptions about reality and facing, daring, daring to face the uncertainty. But daring is also, it also generates vitality. If we want to live on the edge, we want to live with vitality, with aliveness, it takes being daring. But remember, this is what we're talking about here is mindful daring. We're not talking about heedless daring. We're talking about mindful daring. And in this case, mindful daring and living the spiritual life means that we protect ourselves. We're not talking about being naive and irresponsible and frivolous. Yeah. We protect ourselves. And the, the protections that we equip ourselves with, and one of the protections that, of course, everybody here be familiar with, is the precepts. And the moral precepts. We protect ourselves with the determination to live within these boundaries. Like for all Buddhists, the five precepts symbolize a life of integrity. A life of integrity. You know, that's what I trust and that's what I am inspired by. A life that doesn't cause harm to living beings. This one or any other one. And so we have the five precepts. Mm -hmm. And so if we commit to living within that, there is, it grows, it cultivates a sense of trust. Yeah. And it's a, it's, a, it's a wise sense of trust. Yeah. Yeah. If we're compromising integrity and breaking precepts all over the place, well, you know, there's probably a reason why we feel distrust. Yeah. Stealing things and lying and betraying and 
hurting and getting drunk and smoking weed and you know, getting around in a state of diminished responsibility, you know, we're not actually all here. So there's reason to distrust. But with precepts, it's safe to trust. And another way of protecting ourselves that the Buddha talked about um, frequently and very clearly was spiritual companionship. We surround ourselves with spiritual friends, not people that are going to just butter us up because they want us to praise them, but spiritual companions are people who actually tell us the truth. And they reflect the truth back to us. And they're there for us when we're suffering. <clears throat> they're there for us when we need a reflection. They're there for us when we make a mistake and start clinging and falling into delusion again. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. I'm the man.